I'm Michael Dunn, and you're listening to Oregon Rainmakers from KLCC Studios. My guest today is Dr. M. Jackson, who received her PhD in geography and glaciology from the U of O and is a resident of Eugene. A National Geographic Society explorer, TED Fellow, three-time U.S. Fulbright Scholar and author, Jackson talks about her love of science and glaciers and her upcoming fiction debut novel, The Ice Sings. Dr. M. Jackson, who received her PhD in geography and glaciology from the U of O and is a resident of Eugene, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. You know, it's interesting reading your Wikipedia page and reading your bio. I, I almost had to take a take a snack to finish it all. It's so it's so voluminous. But I'd love to you know start with let's go back to the very beginning when you started school and and what got you interested in glaciology and and kind of talk us through where you grew up, how you grew up, all that stuff. Well, I can tell you that I grew up pretty rural. Okay. Uh, my father was a welder up in Alaska, and my mom was a a farmer. And okay. why that's relevant? is I did not think that I would ever be a scientist like I am today. I didn't meet a scientist. I didn't think about science. It wasn't part of my career path. Uh, I actually have an undergraduate degree in uh, bookmaking. I thought it was going to be someone who sewed up and make books. <laughs> well, so what happened? What, what triggered that interest in science? What triggered the interest in science for me is in my late teens and early 20s, I was working as a guide up in Alaska in Skagway. Okay. And I'm a small woman. And why that matters is I had an opportunity to go out with a bunch of birders and haul their stuff on, on kayaks. Wow. Yeah. And I didn't know it at the time, but they were birders from the National Geographic Society. Mm. And so I didn't really understand what was happening in the natural environment in Alaska. And I had people that I guided who asked me all these questions and I didn't know the answers. So when I met these people from the National Geographic Society, I just assumed they knew everything. They were the smartest people I'd ever met. And so I asked them questions about glaciers. And that was the moment that changed everything for me. Because when I asked them these questions, how does ice move? What's happening with the Mendenhall Glacier? What's going on? Yeah. Instead of them saying to me, an answer or I don't know or we just study birds what they said to me is these are great questions and you have the ability to answer them <laughs> no one had ever said that to me in my life before I didn't even think about science and after they'd gone away on their trip and they'd gone back to DC what was really important to me is they kept emailing me hmm. and they kept giving me resources one particular person Ford Cochran he introduced me to different aspects of the geographic he suggested this person, this school, this option, this fellowship, and he mentored me, hmm. which is why I mentor so many people today. I would not have the career that I have today without the lift, the help, uh, the door opening that the National Geographic Society gave me. I bet. I bet. Coming from a, a rural upbringing in, in Alaska, and, and yet, you know, so much of you know, I, I think the vast majority of glaciers in the, in the entire United States are in Alaska. So, so you were in this great environment, but you said, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't at the forefront. It, it took that human connection to sort of, if, if I may, almost like lift up the curtain to what was in your own backyard. Is that, a, is that a correct assessment? I think it is. Just because we live in an environment doesn't mean that we know everything about it. We don't know all the stories, all the science, all the processes of it. That's something we all have to learn. Yeah. So, so you decided 
this happened, I, I think, while you were at Western Washington University, or was yeah, that part after, of it? Okay, yeah, yeah. okay, okay. And then you decided, okay, I'm I'm going to go into this field, and then you got a master's, and then you got a PhD. Um, in your in your education process, uh, or in your in your matriculation, um, you know, were, did you have mentors then that continued this for you? This con- this continued your interest and your love of glaciology and ge- and, and geography. Very much so. I had an opportunity to get a master's degree at the University of Montana in the mm-hmm. Environmental Studies program. But something really pivotal happened to me while I was there. I was studying our environment. I was learning how to write about it. I was learning all these things. But right when that program started for me, when my master's degree started, my mother passed away. Wow. And right at the end of that program, my father passed away. They both had terminal cancer. Mm. And so as I was learning to be a scientist and learning the language of science, learning the language of climatic changes, I was starting to think a lot about how my family itself was starting to change. Our landscape was changing of our entire planet. But then the landscape of my family was changing. And so as a scientist, I started to realize that these things are not separate. The language we use is not separate. Who we are on the place that we live in we can have those same emotional reactions, those same relationships that we have with the people around us. You write a lot about that, and and I, I think it's fascinating. And, and and you know, you have been to places that many of us may never go to. You know, you've been you know Iceland and other places throughout the Arctic and the Antarctic, and you talk about that that con- that connection to the land and, and to what's going on. Dive deeper into that for, for, for the audience in terms of what, what were some of the things as you were as you were studying not just the glaciers but the people around them. What were some of those I don't know aha moments that you, that, that that sort of occurred to you? I have had the opportunity to go back to some of the same glaciers in some really remote places year after year after year. I've developed relationships with some of these glaciers, and it took me a little bit of time to recognize that. Similar to when you're starting to make a friend and you celebrate a birthday and then an anniversary and you get to know people and get to know how they react to things. There are glaciers in Alaska that I know how they're going to react to a strong wind. Hmm. I know how they're going to react to snow coming down. There are glaciers in Iceland, in South Georgia Island, in Antarctica that I go back to year after year. You could blindfold me, Michael, Hmm. and have me stand on that glacier. And this is not bragging. This is intimate knowledge of a body of ice that I know the smell of. Hmm. I know the feel of. I know what the wind sounds like when it goes across the top of that ice. And we have this word, glacier which is like that really pointless word, people, right? (laughs) When it doesn't seem to encompass the immense diversity. We have over 400,000 glaciers and glaciers and ice caps worldwide, and each one of them are so different. They're just as different as you and I. Yeah. It's interesting, as as I'm listening to you talk, and you just just described uh, as your parents passed away. And we're living in a world now where glaciers are passing away um, and, and you just, it was very eloquent the way you described how, how you sort of had this intimate bond with glaciers. So you go back to glaciers each year and you see them. And, and I would imagine you're seeing their death to some degree that, or at least their retrenchment that if global warming wasn't happening, we wouldn't see dying glaciers, or at least their lifespan would be so much larger. 
What is that like for you? Again, you, you talk about this intimate relationship with the glacier and to see them in retreat, what does that do to you both as a scientist but as an emotional human being? That's a great question. It is the nature of glaciers to grow, to get smaller, to oscillate back and forth. Okay. We have great evidence of that. In a world that doesn't have the increasing climatic changes that are anthropogenic in nature, you know, over if I had a lifespan that was hundreds and hundreds of years, I would see ice get bigger and get smaller depending on when I'm there. It's not dissimilar to growing up and watching your parents get old, right? That is, that is the way it should be. But today it is different. There's a glacier by the Merkyogold that is in Iceland. It's Iceland's third largest glacier. And I have, been, I have been seeing this glacier every year for 15, 20 years. And I have to print out pictures of this glacier before I visit now because I can't believe my eyes. I can't believe that this physical body has, has crumbled away. As a scientist, I can rattle off all the metrics of what the loss is. Sure, been. sure. But as a person, I'm watching this, this glacier dissolve away, and I, it is definitely hard to watch. Yeah, I mean, just for us here in the, in the Northwest, the, the, the Hinman Glacier up in near Seattle, yeah. and, and I used to live in Seattle, and I remember talk of it, and I, I think I even saw it at one time, and it's gone. Mm-hmm. And, and that's going to be, unless major changes occurs, um, that's going to be our legacy. I don't know if that's a legacy so much as that's going to be a lasting scar. Okay. Right? Okay. Right. I, the Hinman, I mean, that feeds in the Sky Komish, yeah. right? That there's a lot of salmon. There's a lot of people. There's a lot of story. There's a lot of landscape that depended on that ice. And that ice is no longer there. And until we get a lot more snow and cold temperatures in time, that glacier isn't going to come back, not with the path that we're on. The thing about path is that we can change that. We have the ability to shift it. And I hope we do. (laughs) Um, I'm going to ask you one question, then we're going to go to a a, a quick break. But, you know, that is obviously the question of our age is, is can we as a people unite behind the idea of, of getting off that path that we're on? The, the, you know, the, the two degrees Celsius warming that are, and, and larger that could become beyond the tipping point. Um, in your estimation, both, I, I, I imagine you know well Americans, but you also know other cultures. Mm-hmm. It's, it, it's a tough question, but I'm going to ask it. Do you believe as Americans we have not just the ability, but the willfulness to get off that path? Do I believe we as Americans have the ability to come together and work together yes. to enact a different future? Yeah. I do. Okay. Can I give you the full answer to that? Please. <laughs> uh, so one of my many identities, I'm a public speaker. So mm-hmm. I get to travel around and talk about climate change. Mm-hmm. And a couple years ago, I was down in the American South giving a talk. And I gave a talk about climate change and all those things. And at the end, a lot of people come up, get a chance to meet a scientist. And this woman came up to me and she said, I don't do anything with the climate change. I don't do it because it's getting warmer here and my garden is coming in earlier and I've got new birds and it's really pretty <laughs> and I love it. So I don't want to do anything with climate change. Hmm. And that was a moment for me that was like, oh, we have been having the wrong conversation about climate change. We continually have a conversation that's either doom and gloom 
or a value-based conversation. Climatic changes are bad. And when we have a conversation that's solely value-based, it excludes so many voices from the table. This person from the South could have had a great conversation, a great movement with climatic changes, find out what local things are happening in a movement forward. What we need to be doing is saying, here are the immense diversity of complicated experiences that people everywhere, communities, states, cities, everywhere are having with climate change. And what do those want to do? And how do we unite on an individual level, on a community level, on a state level, on a government level? If we start thinking about it that way, I think we start getting more voices in a room and more possibility. But right now, that's really difficult. Yeah, yeah, it is. We're going to take our break. Uh, we're talking with Dr. M. Jackson. She is a PhD uh, in, in glaciology and geology and, and, and a UGEAT resident and a graduate of the U of O. We'll be right back. I'm Barbara Dellenbach, host of KLCC's Oregon Grapevine. Carly Latero is the director of the Spring Creek Project at Oregon State University. The organization brings together thinkers in the fields of science, philosophy, and the arts. Our hope is that we can do the kind of storytelling that's really that really helps to shift culture around these daunting environmental issues that we're living with today. Interdisciplinary action on campus on the Oregon Grapevine at klcc.org. We're back talking with Dr. M. Jackson. Um, <clears throat> pardon me. Let's talk about glaciers. You know, it's, it's, I think we all, in, in some fashion, understand how important they are. But I'd love to hear both from your science background, but also from your almost humanistic background. What is a glacier, glacier? What does it mean to you? What does it mean to people who live amongst them? and how impactful they are and how inspirational they can be. One of my very <coughs> favorite things to do, Michael, is if ever I'm ever in Seattle mm -hmm. and it happens to be a sunny day. Same mm -hmm. thing happens in Portland. That rare sunny day <laughs> and the mountains out, Rainier yep. or Hood are out. Because mm -hmm. if you're standing in downtown streets, there's that moment and everyone's standing still and they're all turned to face the mountain and they're having two seconds because this is a moment of beauty. And this is part of why we all live in the Pacific Northwest. We get to live with these huge volcanoes that are just coated in ice, and it's a really beautiful moment. We take a breath, and we go about our day. Ice can center us, right? Yeah. We can talk about what ice is, right? It's, it's, it's snow that has fallen, whether it's fallen in 100 years or over a million years, and it's compacted down. And with cold temperatures and time, it starts to flow and shape and grind down our Earth's surface. We can talk about glaciers that way. I've always been fascinated with how we have glaciers all over this planet. We have 400,000 glaciers and glacierettes. And everywhere we have glaciers on this planet, we have people. And people and ice have been influencing each other for the entirety of human history, but we actually know very little about it. And we've only recently started to look at that relationship but we're looking at that relationship in the moment of crisis. Hmm. Makes us got to work harder. <laughs> um, you've done TED Talks. You've talked about glaciology. You've talked about, uh, you've also, you're, you're a Fulbright scholar. You're National Geographic Explorer. Um, when you talk about glaciers or, or talk about environmental sustainability or you talk about global warming, um, how do you make that connection? It's unfortunately, the, 
the larger topic of global warming has become quite political. And, but as a scientist, and also, and just listening to you talk, you're, you're someone who I imagine is, is very comfortable or, or does a good job of making interpersonal human connections. How does that conversation go so that a, a conversation can be non-adversarial and productive? We all have things we love. Okay. I happen to be one of the few nerds out there that absolutely love ice. Okay. So you go to a party with me and I'm going to corner you and I'm either now going to talk about my baby or <laughs> I'm going to talk about cats or glaciers. These are the things I love. Okay. We have bridges we can connect to. Most people are out there in the environment and they know something about it and they're going to tell me something about it and I'm going to tell them about what I love and we are going to make that connection. And we always can go from there. Okay. If you can start, take a second and build that connection, as opposed to leading with your differences, okay. I feel like we can start and begin. And that's usually the experience I've had. Now I can say that from having lived in most places on this planet. <laughs> <laughs> um, almost from a technical aspect, being in the Arctic, being in the Antarctic, you've done so much. Talk about, you know, most of us, have jobs where we can go in a climate controlled environment or even in a factory or something like that and know that you know we can do our jobs and probably not necessarily have to think about things that might do us harm what's it like working in the arctic or the antarctic to both be a scientist and do the 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 scientific study or the human study that you do but you're also working in an environment that is one of the most harsh environments on the planet it's a harsh environment, Michael, but it's a planable harsh okay. environment. Cold, you can prepare for that. Winter, you can prepare for that. Storm, you can prepare for that. If you're dealing with, well, turkeys in the news. So if you're dealing with glaciers in Turkey, you can't plan for the landmines around the ice. Sure. If you're dealing with glaciers in Alaska, it's hard to plan for the bears around the ice, right? I. There are those occasional carnivorous nibbling sheep in Iceland. Uh, if, you're, if you're working with the glaciers in Antarctica on South Georgia Island, it's getting there that can be really, really hard, right? Mm -hmm. You can plan for a lot of these things. I find when I'm not out on the ice, I get distracted. Social media is happening. This thing's happening. All of this is. When I'm out on the ice, contrary to how we represent that, what that science looks like, it's really common to see a picture of usually one single white male out on the ice looking epic. epic. My science never looks like that. It's usually me and a team of people. Okay. And we're usually together, and we are responsible for one another's safety, and that's how we succeed on ice. And thinking about that and being responsible, life and death responsible for one another, it turns off a lot of other things and brings into clarity the simple stuff that did I communicate correctly? Did we all have the game plan? Did we all see the snow bridge? That type of thing. Uh, you prepare and you plan and then you trust. <laughs> Glaciers by their nature are somewhat unstable. I, I imagine that, and, and I hear you about planning and trust and communication, but I don't know if you have a story you want to share of a time on a glacier. For those who don't know, glaciers are, are basically flowing rivers of ice. And so they create crevasses and, 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 and things can happen. You know, huge seracs can fall, uh, uh, crevasses can open up. Maybe talk about a, a time where it was a bit scary, but, but you, you and your team were able to overcome. Probably my favorite story is I was out on a glacier, the Denver Glacier in Southeast Alaska. 
And I was training with my search and rescue team. We were practicing what to do if someone fell into that crevasse you mentioned, Mm -hmm. that crack in the surface ice. And we trained all day. And at the end of the day, we went over just to have some fun. And we were doing some ice climbing. And I was belaying someone up a serac. So think about a shark's fin. That's what a serac is. A chunk of ice, but it looks like a shark's fin. And And they can be huge. Oh, they were huge. It was a full lineup. And this person hit some rotten ice that I was belaying. And they fell. And Mm. when they fell, my anchor that was was, uh, locking me to the surface of the glacier, it failed as well. So I was yanked off my feet and I was dropped in a crevasse full of water and I sank. And I still remember this because I instantly blacked out. But why I'm sitting here telling you this amazing adventure story is because I was out there with my search and rescue team and we had just practiced this and they fished me out and had me rewarming. But that was the lesson, right? I would never be out on the ice by myself. I will always be out with a team of people who I've got a pretty strong idea of what their skill set is. Yeah, yeah. Earlier, you talked about the image of glaciology, and you talked about usually it's a white male on, on a glacier. I'd love to talk about that, being, being a woman in, in both glaciology, geography, but then being someone who goes all over the planet in very trying circumstances. And, and you've talked about this before, of some of the challenges of, of, of being a woman in a probably a male-dominated field. Talk a little bit about that and, and how you had to face those challenges and overcome them. It's been a slow process, Michael. When I was younger, I was out for a paycheck. And so I go out on an expedition and I'm not the leader of the expedition. And so it would often be me and a lot of men out. If you imagine a big glacier, we're talking something that looks a little bit like a parking lot. Hmm. Where do I go to the bathroom if I'm out there all day, right? (laughs) These things that never really were ever discussed. Why was I always the only woman out there? Hmm. As I have progressed in my career, especially with Netflix and the geographic and all these things that make me a bit more public facing, I get these requests in my inbox all the time. Dr. M, we want you to go out on a glacier. Can we put your hair down and make you look epic? (laughs) And I love the idea of that. And I'll tell you, my ego is like double thumbs up. Let's do it. But the reality is that I've gotten a little bit more comfortable in in where I am in my career. And so I say, yes, let's do that. But let's also have my team. Let's have the interns that are learning. Let's have local people that interact with this ice every day also out there. I'm hoping that more and more people will see the range of depictions of what glacier science can look like. Mm -hmm. Whether you're a glacier scientist and you're, you're rooted in geography or geology or glaciology or literature, whatever it is that you're doing, I want our range and our imaginary when it comes to ice to get bigger. And I'm really, really specific about that, Michael, because we're losing our world's eyes. Mm. So I want as many eyes and as many possibilities looking at it as we can right now. And I do respect that some people are disciplined policing. They're all about, no, you have to have this or this or this to be able to get out there. But I also want you to realize, Michael, a lot of these glaciers, they're in places that are really hard to get to and very expensive. And that tends to whittle down, again, who can get there and why and all of these things. So I spend a lot of my time trying to argue that we need more people out there with more diverse skill sets, points of view, backgrounds. That's going to tell us more things. Sure, sure. We're going to take our next break. We're talking with Dr. M. Jackson. We'll be back in just a second. If you're thinking of donating your car, I cannot encourage you more to go ahead and do it. The dividends are great. You'll feel good about yourself that what you did was so easy. It'll help your community. 
by supporting these wonderful stations. How can you beat that? Get all the details at our website, klcc.org. We're back talking with Dr. M. Jackson. Um, you know, it's interesting because I imagine your career path could have been, okay, I'm going to be a glaciologist, I'm going to be a researcher, and and that would be a, an extremely fulfilling career. But you've gone beyond that because you've you've become, like you said, you're, you're, you're a much sought after public speaker. You, you, you talk to a lot of different groups. You've also helped uh, create and, and star in a Netflix special about looking for gold in, in, in the Yukon territory. Um, and then you've also written books as well. So So talk about the ways in which you've gone beyond perhaps researcher to somebody who is going to be part of telling the story about glaciers and the environment. I think we have a real opportunity to communicate science in real fun and exciting ways. I mean, there is so much content out there that we Mm -hmm. get to witness, read, watch every day. And the opportunity to tell one of the most exciting stories on this planet the story of science, the story of how things come to be and how they interact and how they influence, that's the story I want to get aboard on. And so for me, I love that aspect of science communication. I love it when Netflix calls and says, hey, we want you to go out to the Aleutian Islands for three months during COVID (laughs) and look for something. I'm on board with that. That sounds fun. If I'm having fun and I'm communicating science, I'm going to assume that most other folks are as well. Yeah. Um, if they called today, you have a young child, could you still do that? I mean, how, how is it? Because that's, that's, that's a reality for all of us is, is, you know, uh, family can be, it's obviously one of the most wonderful things, but obviously it can, for someone as active as you and somebody who on a moment's notice could have gone, could, could be anywhere on the globe. How has it been able to sort of transition that way? That question, how do I mom and how do I science? Yeah. That's a huge question. Women have been doing that for as long as women have been doing science, but often it's not visible. And so for me to tell you how I would do it, I don't have those answers because I don't have a lot of examples of that and I don't have a lot of public examples, but women have been doing that. Sure. And how I know that is a lot of women have reached out to me and said, hey, don't forget this and do this. And if you're having your kid crawl around on a glacier foreground. Don't forget those pebbles are just perfect size for swallowing, right? <laughs> so I think about this quite often because my goal would be to go out into these places with my son, mm-hmm. not only because I think it would just blow my son's mind. Yesterday, he put his entire hand in his mouth. I think he's a genius and obviously a scientist, right? He wanted to explore that. But I think it would be an incredible opportunity for him to be out in these places But imagine what other women, other families, other people who are growing and tending small kids, what they would think if they got to see parenting and science not separated, Mm -hmm. not with one person getting to be a scientist and the other person having to be the caregiver and staying at home. But imagine if that looked like something possible. Mm -hmm. That's what I'd love to show. Yeah. Um, In addition to all the things that you've done, you're an author and, and you're someone who you've written several books, uh, you know, The Secret Lives of Glaciers and While Glaciers Slept, slept. you know, tell us about those books, but also tell us about becoming an author, you know, kind of, uh, you know, what need did that sort of, or what itch did that scratch for you as an author? Yeah, uh, 
I love writing. If I had the perfect world, mm-hmm. I would just be writing. But let's be honest, that's not the perfect world. And then I'd have to be inside or sitting. And that usually never works for my sure. mental health very well. You know, I spend a lot of time on airplanes. I spend a lot of time on trains and traveling and all of this. And I've had a friend once say to me, I see that you're texting a lot on your phone. <laughs> and I very snarkily responded back and said, I'm writing. I get to spend a lot of spaces writing. I think that for books, you have to self-select. You could watch a Netflix special and enjoy something sciency. You could watch something on social media, a short film. You could watch an interview. You can watch a TED Talk. Those are all great ways to consume glaciers, but everybody doesn't do that. Okay. There's going to be a nerd set, very narrow, I tell you, that's <laughs> going to be like, I'm going to pick up that nonfiction book on glaciers. And they'll read that. But that's, again, not everybody. Okay. Others will be like, I want to learn about human stories. So they're going to gravitate towards memoir. But again, that's not everybody. And so I was a visiting writer at the University of Montana, uh, I think right about before the pandemic started. And I was having a conversation with how do we best communicate science. And one of the really surprise known ways of doing that is diversify how we communicate. Okay. And I realized I hadn't been doing that. I had never given myself the challenge of trying to write fiction because some people will come for a great story and they will learn science along the way. I'm a huge fiction reader. I'm a fan of pretty much any fiction out there. And so it really got me thinking and I said to myself, challenge accepted. I wanted to write a novel. Okay, and and so we should mention that that's what you've done. The Ice Sings Back is mm-hmm. is your latest novel. It's your first. It's your first it's my fiction. First one, yeah. So talk a little bit about how you germinated that idea, mm-hmm. and was it challenging to switch from being a nonfiction writer to a fiction writer? It was a huge challenge. So to answer your first question. This book, I I sat down and I said, where am I not contributing? I live in Eugene, Oregon, and I can go to the grocery store and have this beautiful anonymity here. I do very little in this community. I don't write about this community. I don't talk about this community. I talk about glaciers in South Georgia and Antarctica and all these places. So I set myself the challenge of rooting a story here in Eugene because there are glaciers here. There are people connected to ice here, and I wanted to really explore that. And I wanted to do it in a way that did not involve me typing out a sentence and then finding 18 citations to to (laughs) support that sentence and then moving on. And so for me, writing fiction was a breath because I got to write about, I got to write about women's stories in science uh, in ways that I could imagine without having to prove them, without having to challenge them, without having to come up with all the evidence for them. And it was... It was an incredible learning experience and an incredible challenge. I would love to write 18 more because I had so much fun doing it. Um, tell us a little bit, as, as best you can, tell us about the book. What is it about so that we can whet the, uh, the, uh, the, the listener's appetite? Well, Michael, it, The Ice Things Back is a thriller. It's a <laughs> mystery. It's an environmental novel. It's a lot of things. It's the story of four women. And this book follows their stories as they're all connected by a small child who goes missing in the three sisters. And as people begin to go looking for this, things, we learn new things, they start to get revealed. There's been a lot of missing women and girls in the Pacific Northwest and up through BC. And that story I wanted to touch on. And so this book starts to go into that story. I wanted to touch on this idea of what women in science look like, Mm. what they can do, 
And so I bring that story in. I wanted to I wanted to bring in a story of revenge and love. <laughs> and I really wanted to showcase as a character the three sisters, wilderness, the Collier Glacier, all of these stories that I have heard as a scientist about this place. I spent a lot of time walking around out there. It's a pretty amazing place, and I want a reader to come away with a strong sense of what this place is like. Is it... In, in writing this, 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 this fictional book, we talked earlier about mentorship, but is, is part of your hope of, of this book that it will, be, it, will, it will be accessible to many people, but also as I'm listening to you talk, I'm thinking, hmm, you know, I have a daughter who's 18 years old. I want her to meet you because she's very interested in science. Is that, is, in some ways, is that, is that part of what you do in all of the different content that you create is, is hope that you can inspire and, and distance mentor for people you may never meet? Mentorship changed my life. Okay. It really, really did. You know, I spend a lot of time talking to people of all ages, but a lot of time talking to young people. And what I want them to know is that they don't have to be a glaciologist. They don't have to be a scientist. But they damn well need to know it's an option for them. I never knew that was an option for me. And so they don't have to be a scientist. But if they want to, that is a path before them. And that path is not straight and narrow. That okay. path can be as diverse and inclusive as they want it to be. It's important that that gets through today because we tend to narrow ourselves pretty young. I bet. Well, I think you're right. You know, if, if I've asked people sitting in that chair about kind of, you know, sort of a legacy that they may want to leave and... and <laughs> You're too young to be talking about legacy. However, you know, if if you could be remembered as a, 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 a top-notch glacial scientist or a top-notch author, does one maybe rise a little bit above the other or do they work in tandem perfectly? I think that they don't work in tandem perfectly, but good science is a foundation. Okay. So any of the good science that I have made, hopefully the next scientist comes along and builds on that and builds on that and builds on it. I don't need everyone to stand here in the corner and say, that's M. Jackson's science over there. <laughs> I want them to say, we took glaciology this much further. And I think that's exciting. Sure. I want people to say, I got inspired to do amazing science. I got inspired to think differently. I got inspired to fight for Westmoreland Park because I got to read some of these stories, watch this film, watch this short, watch this talk, what have you. I just, it comes back to me. I am going to forever for the rest of my life work to save and protect glaciers. That's what I do. Mm -hmm. You don't have to do that, Michael. <laughs> Nobody else has to do that. But they damn well need to find their thing, whether it is gonna be that they're gonna fight for a park or an ocean or a river, and they need to advocate like hell for that thing because that's how we move forward. Sure, sure. Uh, you talk about, as we, as we wrap up here, um, you talked about that, that you talk to a lot of young people. Um, you know, and, and it's, it's always easy to say, oh, you know, talk about a particular generation and whether or not they're uh, committed to a certain thing or whatnot. But I guess, you know, you've been a mentor, you've inspired people. Have you been inspired by young people that you talk to, whether it's at a book signing, whether it's, uh, you know, maybe you're talking to a class about glaciology? What are, what are some of the lessons or what are some of the inspirations you take from, say, a group of high school kids or something like that? 
When I started out, we talked about this. When we, I started out, I used to be the one woman out there on the ice. Yeah. I'd look around. It's pretty quiet. <laughs> now I'm out there. I run into other groups. And it's a lot of young women. It's a lot of young men. It's a lot of people on that gender range that are making it possible, that are redefining what it means to study ice. And they're asking questions that I don't know the first answer to. And those are the questions that are important. And so I get rather inspired when I see that. It doesn't, it's, it pushes me to reimagine what might be possible. Okay. Okay. Before I let you go, we should mention, so you're going to be in town fairly recently signing your books at Tsunami Books. What's the date of that? Uh, so it's March 2nd. I believe it's about two to four on a Friday. I'll be at Tsunami all day. Uh, well, not all day, but most of the afternoon. And I'm just there to sign books if it, or if anyone wants to have a WeChat. Oh, that sounds great. Thank you so much for coming in. You've, you've done some amazing things and continue to do. And I imagine, you know, a lot of, uh, I bet you some of those women that you're seeing on glaciers perhaps got into the field because of maybe a talk you did or, or some science you did, or just the fact that you were there when you were the only woman on the glacier at that time. Thank you so much. That was our conversation with Dr. M. Jackson. Jackson's science background provided her with a great foundation for her new novel, Set in Eugene and the Sisters Wilderness. This has been the Oregon Rainmakers podcast on KLCC. I'm Michael Dunn, your host. Thanks for listening.